I'm Abby Kenny, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I am Abby Kinney, an urban planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined once again with my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. How are you today? Hey, Abby. I'm doing wonderful. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Just another mucky, hot summer day. <laughs> we have, I was going to say, we have had unseasonably gorgeous weather here. We were out on the boat all day yesterday. It was 85 and sunny. And I just, it is such a beautiful, it, we need rain. We need rain very badly. But uh, besides that, it has been gorgeous. Well, that sounds very nice. I'm glad that you are enjoying the summer. Do you have any 4th of July plans? I, okay. I got asked to be in the parade for the first time in like, <laughs> I don't know how many years, because the band, because of COVID, the band is not playing and they want someone playing drums. Uh, okay. And so they're asking me to get together like a group of drummers to play drums in the band. Just drums? Yeah, just drums. And I'm like, um, that might've been really cool when I was 17 or 18, but it's <laughs> 30 years later and I don't know as I can, uh, I mean, I could, I, I don't know. Anyway, I'm trying to help the mayor figure that problem out. He wants marching drums in the band, in the parade. And I'm like, I don't blame you. The parade is back. We didn't have a parade last year. It's back this year. We want it to be big and bold and fun. And without the high school marching bands, it's not the same. So like, what, what can we do marching band light? And they're turning to like the former drummers, I guess. Yeah. Just collect all the people who once played the drums, currently play the drums, and put together a marching band. Well, that sounds like fun. Hopefully that works out for you. (laughs) So today we have an article that's written by Scott Calvert for the Wall Street Journal. It is called One Failed Bridge in Memphis is Costing Business Millions. So some listeners may have heard that the Interstate 40 Bridge, which spans the Mississippi River connecting Memphis, Tennessee to West Memphis, Arkansas, has been closed unexpectedly. Last month, a contractor for the Arkansas Department of Transportation spotted a large crack in a steel support beam that put the six-lane bridge at risk of failure. So the closure has rerouted 40,000 cars and trucks each day, which has turned a usual 10-minute drive from one state to the other into a three-hour disaster for everyone. So this is obviously suppressing the region's economic recovery and decelerating local and national supply chains even. Representatives from the Arkansas Trucking Association have reported a $2 million daily loss. So this new lack of regional mobility is also stifling local businesses, especially in West Memphis, which is a small town really on the other side of the river, where many retail and service businesses, they rely on commuters from the metro, from the other side of the river. So this is really hurting them. The American Road and Transportation Builders Association has reported 45,000 bridges in the United States 
that are in poor condition. And the ACSC says that 42% of the U.S.'s bridges are at least 50 years old. So I don't think this is going to be just a Memphis story in the long run. I don't think this will be the first time a bridge fails. We so often hear about the national infrastructure crisis, especially within our national political theater. But I'm not really sure that we recognize all of the implications associated with bridges failing, for example, until we start to feel it in these ways. To a lot of people, infrastructure really isn't so interesting until it really you really start to feel it. And now we're really seeing some of the implications from national and even regional infrastructure failures and ineffective management. So Chuck, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are you know, from your perspective, from a strong town's perspective on these closures of bridges failing. Let me put some nuance to the idea that there's $2 million a day being lost. I think we could easily go like full strong towns here and say, you know, see, we've built too much. We don't have enough money devoted to maintenance. Uh, We should be maintaining these bridges and actually, you know, picking the ones that are the best and making sure they're in tip top condition. And we are going to have to like shut down some of these other ones because we just don't have the funds to maintain all of them. You know, I I think we could go down that route and I think there's there's a case to be made. I feel like the more interesting insight here is whether there's really $2 million being lost right now. I think it's very clear there's a FedEx, you know, Memphis is a FedEx hub. There's certainly a lot of FedEx shipping that would go across this bridge. And if you are FedEx or if you are, let's, you know, take any people who use FedEx, Amazon, for example, this is putting a dent in your business plan. Uh, This is changing the nature of your uh, business. This subsidy of this bridge is now gone. You're going to have to like use up more time, uh, have different loadings of trucks, be more efficient in other ways in order to make your business model work. On the other hand, there's a lot of other services now that actually are more competitive services that, you know, would be more localized, would be more competitive services that don't rely on going across this bridge. If I'm an employer on the uh, West Memphis side, and I'm trying to find people to work for me, well, now all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people who used to commute to Memphis are now available to me. Now, a bunch of people who commuted from Memphis to, you know, across the bridge are not. But, you know, it's, it's not just to say in this one dimensional thing, like $2 million is lost. This is a dynamic system and it's going to respond dynamically. I remember when the 35W bridge came down in Minneapolis and there was kind of two immediate reactions. First, this is going to destroy everyone's commute. Everyone's commute is going to be absolutely impacted. And then two, this would have a massive downward economic pull on the region. Like this was going to really hurt the region economically. Neither of those things came true. People rerouted. They left at different times of the day. They compensated. They took transit. They took different jobs. There was no net decrease in in economic growth in the region. There was no massive traffic congestion despite a a bridge that took, I want to say like 200,000 vehicles a day. I mean, just a massive amount of traffic. These systems are dynamic. And when we treat them as if they're static, you know, as if all 45,000 cars that went across this Memphis bridge now must still cross, but cross somewhere else. 
that's just not an honest analysis of what is going on. And I, I think that that oversimplicity does us harm. N not that this bridge being closed is a good thing per se, I'm not arguing that, but I am arguing that bridges in general are more complex and dynamic, that the, the feedback loops that create are more complex and dynamic than a simple, there's this much water that flows through a pipe. If the pipe closes, that water has to go somewhere else. It's not water, it's dynamic traffic that people can make human decisions and react to this in real time in ways that our models and our projections and our you know dire economic warnings don't factor in. Yeah, and I think for a lot of Americans who are not really they're they're not working in the realm of infrastructure or infrastructure management, it's easy to take things like bridges for granted and just assume that our infrastructure is being managed effectively and that bridge is going to be in good condition in the long term. So, you know, this could be really a wake-up call for people to maybe consider what they're relying on in terms of commuting across a metro and across a river every single day and whether or not that that is sustainable. You would hope that the people stewarding this country would be effectively managing infrastructure, uh, the, the existing infrastructure that we have. To your point, I think the initial strong town's insight is that we really need to be having a fix-it-first approach. Unfortunately, we also really like new shiny things, and a lot of people aren't very interested in fixing the things that we have. Um, I was recently, I can't remember who the comedian was, but there was a comedian who recently said that America is like a trust fund baby squandering their wealth. <laughs> and um, I, I tend to agree with that. You know, it's like, it, or at least the people who are really supposed to be um, managing our infrastructure, we are allowing them to squander it and, you know, not really holding them accountable. One of the things that I thought that this article really put into perspective for me was some of the risks that are associated with having global and national supply chains in this network that really relies on our freeway systems in order to function. Distribution is not only a major business in the modern world, but it also is foundational to how regular families actually purchase and then consume goods. I think throughout 2020, it has become much more apparent to more people uh, how little we actually make for ourselves in the United States. It's hard to imagine that, you know, 100 years or so ago, we were not necessarily relying on these mega corporations to source materials globally so that we could have our, you know, Swiffer pads or, you know, whatever the things that it is that we buy just for daily life. So at Strong Towns, you talk a lot about ways for local communities to become more resilient. And I think that it's important to consider the context of nationalized uh, supply chains and even globalized supply chains and how lack of effective infrastructure management puts us in a fragile state. If basic daily resources and local functioning in Memphis are reliant on the sustainability of a bridge, for example, then basic maintenance ought to be critically important or there ought to be an, a viable alternative for manufacturing things locally. Right. So the, the American Jobs Plan, which as, as you and I are speaking now today, there's the rumor of a 
a deal on infrastructure between the president and key members of both parties in the Senate, uh, uh, a filibuster-proof majority on infrastructure. So we'll, we'll see what that plan details. But the American Jobs Plan, the plan that the president put out, had this very weird bridge proposal. The article that we're talking about says there are 45,000 bridges that are in, I can't remember what the exact term they use here. There's some different terms, but like substandard condition or, or what have you. They, 45,000 bridges in poor condition that need repair. The, the jobs plan from the president references that same number, 45,000 bridges. That's a number, I believe, from the American Society of Civil Engineers. The American jobs plan, and let me just quote from it, will fix the 10 most economically significant bridges in the country. It will also repair the worst 10,000 smaller bridges. I read that and I, I wrote this in like the three part of the five part series I wrote on the jobs plan. I found that completely incoherent. If there are 10 bridges that are critical, like if we're going to look at this Memphis bridge and say, this is critical for the entire macro economy of the country, not just the, you know, in time supply chain of Walmart and what have you, but actually for like the functioning of the economy, these are critical bridges. Why would you stop at 10? You know, how many of those like critical to the economy bridges are there in the country? And why then would you choose to, you know, as opposed to fixing 11 of them or 12 of them or whatever it is, focus on the smallest 10,000 bridges as the ones that you should repair? I, when I did engineering a couple of decades ago, I worked on a project where it was, you know, a federally funded repair of a small bridge. And it was a little span that connected an island with a bunch of very wealthy vacation homes to um, Maine County Road. And the federal government was spending like 800,000 or a million dollars, something like that to, to fix this bridge. I don't know why we would prioritize that in a, in a bridge scheme. It, it seems like what we have, and I feel like this bridge failing is a, is a byproduct of this. What we have is a system designed to build over and over and over again, new stuff where all the energy in the system, all the intellectual energy, let me just use a term that I think is overused, but like the best and the brightest people working on this are working on like the brand new bridge and maintenance not only gets like short shrift and what have you, but it's a, it's an afterthought to the inertia and the momentum of the system. And so you have a thing like, you know, this dramatic shutdown of this bridge in Memphis come along and it isn't something that should actually sneak up on us. If, if we were obsessive and focused on maintenance the way that we should be of these critical systems that are so critical to the operation of the country and the macro economy and millions of dollars lost today, if that's true, we should be like obsessing over these places. Like they should be our total obsession. And it's, it's not hard to recognize that a bridge built in 1957 is going to need a hell of a lot of maintenance, you know, like a lot of people out there looking at it constantly trying to find ways to, you know, squeeze more life out of this thing and maintain it and keep it operational and shore it up when it goes back. Like that, that should surprise nobody. Right. Nobody, right. And, yeah. and the thing is, we built thousands of bridges during this period of time, the late 1950s through the 1960s. They're all done. They're all obsolete. Like they've all reached the end of their life and they all need to be maintained. We're not going to be serious until we actually put, you know, and I'm, I'm going to misuse this phrase again, but the best and the brightest. And what I really mean is like our emphasis and passion and like the thing we're focused on 
until we put that into solving this problem, as opposed to building more and more, uh, we're just going to have this over and over again. Well, and maybe the focus isn't even necessarily, maybe it doesn't need to be around infrastructure. What it really is about is moving things around and getting getting things from point A to point B. And what I think is kind of ironic is that 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 used to be the waterways of the country, right? Like we used to move things using rivers and we decided to instead build all of this infrastructure to move things around. And that became the main network that we use to, to move something from point A to point B where, and ironically, those uh, networks need to be built across the water that we used to use to actually move things around in, which is unfortunate because we don't necessarily need to pay to sustain the river. I mean, unless it completely dries up, but but it's a pretty sustainable route for us. I mean, it, and unfortunately, it doesn't seem that it, it's now become a hindrance for us. And the alternative option that their Memphis is currently utilizing in this case is the secondary bridge which certainly does not have the capacity to support the sheer volume of traffic that needs to move across their river. Um, It's also kind of concerning when you go and look at the bridge on Google Street View. It's like two lanes, and it also looks incredibly old. So (laughs) I'm not an engineer, but I do wonder whether a bridge like that can actually support the weight that it is being subjected to. So that's a little bit concerning and, you know, maybe it's not something they want to touch at this point, but a little bit of a concern. You know, the solution that they've been brewing for years in, in the Memphis area for this, for, for at least a decade or more now, they've been wanting to build a third bridge. So, <laughs> so you have like one super old bridge, you replace it with a more modern bridge that has more capacity. The modern bridge now goes out. And so you reroute back to the the old, but before the modern bridge went out, the plan for fixing this mess was to build a third bridge. And and I think that, you know, the, the ridiculousness of that needs to come through. We are not maintaining stuff. We don't actually have the money or the capacity or the programs or the the desire even at at a programmatic level to maintain these things. But what we do have is a lot of passion for building a new bridge. I mean, I'm looking at an article right now uh, from News 3 in Memphis. State leaders call on lawmakers to build third Memphis area bridge. And I mean, this has been decade now, at least, that they've been talking about this. Why? Why? I've got another meme for you. It makes me think of that meme where there's three people sitting in a conference room with their boss and the boss is like, you know, they could be like, you know, our bridge is failing. What should we do about it? And the first person is like, oh, maybe we should build another bridge. And the second person is like, maybe we should get a bunch of money and fix the bridge when, you know, it's an emergency. And then the third person is like, maybe we should take a fix it first approach and maintain what we have. And then they throw them out the window. Throw them out the window, right. We don't want to hear that. You're the, you're the heretic, right? Yeah, that's the heretic. I was thinking about when you were saying that your daughter was suggesting creative um, transportation options and that she thinks that we should all be getting around cities using zip lines. And it made me think, 
what other creative ways we could be actually moving people across bodies of water or even distribution networks. Are there other ways to cross a river? Surely there could be an alternative that isn't a bridge, I would think, to actually get stuff across a river that is, you know, not as fast as getting across a bridge, but in emergencies like this, potentially you could do it in less than three hours, which is what the current uh, timeline is for these people. So especially for the trucking industry, I just wonder if there's a way that we could be prepared for emergencies like failing bridges that enable freight to move merchandise across a body of water, you know, maybe a boat. (laughs) Well, let let me go full Jim Kunstler on you. Because, I, I, you know, Jim has talked for a long, long time and his early books even referenced this like very just in time, very uh, tightly wound global supply chain. And, you know, you look to our responses to hardship and our response has been to basically get a bigger hammer. Let's make things more efficient. Let's wind them even tighter. Let's outsource these jobs that we can't pay Americans to do and keep prices down. There's a whole like series of kind of intertwined cascading things around this efficiency narrative. Once you start exploring that, what you recognize very quickly is that the interstates have not been built for us. They've not been built for you and for me. They've not been built for commuters. They've not been built for this kind of like whatever you want to box up as the American dream and the American lifestyle. What it has been built for is for the economic machine that we've created. We want Amazon to be able to ship things just in time from all over the world. We want Walmart to be able to have low, low prices and ship things from all over the world. We want uh, DR Horton and whatever your you know uh, building company to be able to build new homes at scale as efficiently as possible in new like cul-de-sac areas off of frontage roads built along highways. This is a system that we have created, not for the people who live in it, but for the economic machine that is overlaid on it. I'm saying this as a free market person. I'm saying this as someone who thinks that the economics of these places are really important. I'm less enamored with the international globalized macro economy and how we tweak that and make that work and wind it as tight as possible and get the most out of it as I am with creating very resilient thick economic ecosystems at the local level. And quite frankly, uh, you know, I'm glad nobody has been hurt here. I'm glad nobody has suffered, you know, a bridge collapse, like people died at the 35W bridge. I'm thankful that hasn't happened. I fear that will happen in other places as we wind these 1950s and 60s bridges down. But I want everybody to get prepared for a world where we have less, fewer bridges and where we have fewer road miles and where we're actually driving less and where we're actually like ordering something from Amazon and it maybe doesn't show up for, you know, 10 days because that's what like a normal package across a country would take in, you know, using trains and boats and things that, you know, from a transportation standpoint are not as quick, but actually are more energy efficient or time efficient or what have you. Yeah. And I think, I think part of that is kind of breaking out of this conditioning as a consumer, I guess you would say that, that you need to have all of these different products right now. And I, I mean, it's, it's interesting when you really consider all of the different, just basic things that you purchase on a regular basis that are intended for, you know, 
cleaning the house, face lotions, face washes. Like there's just so many little things that we um, have come to expect to have access to on a regular basis. And that's really just the modern lifestyle at this point. And I, I mentioned the Swiffer uh, WetJet pads because that's like the one thing that I will not buy because I can't imagine for the rest of my life buying such a silly product that you can only use once and is so wasteful when you can just use towels. So it, that's the thing is it's I feel that we have we've gotten to this point where we really are, are expecting to have access to things that are not really necessary that actually don't make life more efficient. Um, so, so can I make a very practical point and I'll ask you, I I don't know. I wonder how many people listening to this, including you have a little bit extra toilet paper in storage than what they would have had say in February of 2020. I do now. Yeah, you do now, don't you? For no for no good reason. I mean, the whole toilet paper shortage at the beginning of the pandemic was like an artificial thing that had nothing to do with like the quantity of toilet paper people <laughs> were using or like any, any such thing. It was a weird response to the early days of the pandemic. But I, I think one of the conditioning things that come out of that is that now you have, and everybody has this, I think to a small degree or not everybody, but like I think a way, way, way more people than used to. Uh, yeah, I have a few extra rolls. Like I don't let it get down to one. I'm, 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 I keep, you know, a, a little bit extra on hand. That's not really a rational response if you step back and look at like the macro economy and the way it's being shaped. But it's a very rational response to uh, like a learned, basically like learned stimuli, right? Like I learned this lesson and I'm going to keep it now and I'm going to pass it on. And I'm that, that's how like received wisdom is. And what you're actually seeing there in that modest stockpiling of toilet paper that everybody's kind of done is what humans have learned over time about supply chains is like, they are fragile. They don't always work. We should keep excess supplies of stuff. And I think that that's important, not because it's gluttonous or it's wasteful, but what it is, is it's insurance. Like it's resiliency. You're building in redundancy and resiliency into the system. And now you can help your neighbor if your neighbor needs help and your neighbor can help you and you can work together in your neighborhood to help other people and figure things out. But if you're left with a system where everything you get is can only be on the shelf for 24 hours because that's the business model and it has to be just in time delivery and there has to be a, a, a fleet of trucks that go over the bridge in Memphis every day or other people won't get their toilet paper, not only but their food or their, you know, their emergency supplies or their medicine or what have you. Yeah, exactly. That is a screwed up economy. That That's an economy that does not really work. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that the basic lesson for situations like this, but also certainly 2020 is that it, it doesn't hurt to just have some basic things lying around and to stockpile. I, I, I think toilet paper is kind of the, the joke, but it, I mean, you don't I have went, to give it to me. I'm like prepper light. You exactly. Know? <laughs> and who's laughing now, right? I mean, yeah. I, I definitely over the past year, I don't know why I thought about this, but you know, in April of last year, I thought, oh, I don't have a first aid kit. So I got a first aid kit and, you know, got some basic medicines, vitamins, things like that, just to have on hand. And and I think that, you know, we've we've taken the system for granted because it's always been there. And I, you know, at least in my life, it's 
it has seemed like these supply chain networks were always going to be working properly, but unfortunately, things things do go wrong. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with people at the family level having a modest amount of things on hand in case they can't get things, you know, in a day, in case Amazon can't deliver on that. Can I give one more example? Sure. So a couple of weeks ago, and we don't need to get into all the details of everything, but a couple of weeks ago, we being me and, and the rest of the team here at Strong Towns sent you some cookies just to be nice. We wanted you to get like a nice thing of cookies. When we were looking into that, we were inundated with advertisements from national companies that wanted to, I don't know, box up cookies from some, uh, you know, I don't know, an undisclosed location, maybe overseas, I don't know, <laughs> and ship them to you overnight so that you would get them the next day. And we were actually able to find a little cookie shop, I think just a few blocks from you, yeah, that d- delivered them to your door. To me, what we have done in a macro sense is taken that small little cookie shop And by making, you know, building a third bridge across Memphis and being able to get more FedEx trucks across and and run all this, we have actually priced out of the market the local little cookie place that would bring you cookies and replace them with the large, like industrialized, let's make gazillion cookies every day and ship them out in boxes. Some people prefer that and some people like that and think that that's better. That's fine if that's your preference. But... they're both cookies, right? It's a way that you deliver cookies to someone. And what we have done is we have chosen, I think unintentionally through our infrastructure policies, we have chosen one economic system, the one that would have your cookies made in China and then shipped overseas and then delivered to you on a FedEx truck the next day. We we have chosen that economic model over the one that they bake you cookies and then walk them over to your house four blocks away and leave them on your steps with a note and a handshake. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And cook, right? Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, th- that, I mean, as we continue to scale up, but the infrastructure is not being properly maintained and there's potentially not capacity to maintain that whole system. Of course, I don't, I don't know that we're going to be moving things around using zip lines like your daughter might suggest, <laughs> right. but, but we do Tell need to idea. get creative yeah. about, about, you know, how we're, how we're producing things and how we are moving things around and getting them to people. Well, maybe the emphasis shouldn't be on getting, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in federal money to build a third bridge over the river <laughs> in Memphis. No, maybe, maybe the not. emphasis should be on seeding all those local alternative businesses that would actually employ people, improve people's quality of life, give them ownership, equity, you know, create like local economic ecosystems. Maybe, maybe that's an alternate model that would actually improve people's lives. I think it is. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, that is all the time that we have for today. So we'll end it there. But before we finish, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything we have been reading, listening to, just anything that's been captivating our time these days. Um, Chuck, I know that you've had a very busy week. You had a staff retreat. Have you been doing anything else? No, no. (laughs) No, I've only been doing this. So we have this remote office uh, where everybody works 
from different places around the country. And in fact, there are people who work for Strong Towns that I have had never met until this week. And they all flew out here to Minnesota. They all came to Brainerd. I was very flattered that uh, we were able to get the team here. And uh, we did our first retreat in 14 months. And so, yeah, our retreats are fun. It's getting to know each other a little bit, but also, you know, that's the way you work together over distance, right? Is to have kind of personal relationships. So we, we get together and we have a nice evening. And then the next day we spend a day working in the office. And then yesterday we just, we take a day always just for discussion. We kind of like open discussion and let's just talk and have it be as free flowing as possible. And this retreat, we chose to do that on uh, the lake. On a, I rented a pontoon boat and we went out to the middle of the lake and put our feet in the water and bobbed and sat there and talked. And I was hoping and hoping that it would be beautiful weather and it was 85 and sunny and just gorgeous. Perfect. So we, yeah. So before you and I recorded this, like everyone literally just left. We did the long Minnesota goodbye where we said goodbye for like an hour. <laughs> and then everybody left and is going back to the airport and going home. And I'm, uh, I'm here and kind of missing them already. Oh, well, that sounds like fun. Do you guys do any fishing? Uh, someone mentioned that they wanted to fish. And I, I feel bad because she said she wanted to learn how to fish. I feel bad because I didn't bring, no, we didn't do any fishing. I'm not um, a serious fisher, but I do catch a bluegill here and there. So um, I, I'd like to fish. Well, when you move up here, which I'm, I'm assuming was going to be soon, uh, <laughs> I promise to take you fishing regularly. Yes, we I will go fishing. I would be happy fishing. to do that. Yes. I, I went fishing recently and I caught a bluegill and was very proud of myself. When, when I was younger, um, I had a friend whose dad had a bunch of land and uh you know a pond that he stocked with fish and i one night caught i don't know probably 20 of these bluegill and he actually he actually prepared them for us and they wow. weren't horrible i i know that most people don't eat those but they weren't too bad i don't even know what a bluegill like we do not have bluegill they're like not really edible huh. i don't know I'm that we right ate now. them <laughs> It looks like a big sunfish is what we would call it. Yeah, they're um, really pretty. Yeah, we get um, walleye is the like the choice fish that people want to eat up here. And then uh, the fun ones to catch are bass or northern pike yep. um, are fun to catch. But I, yeah. I love lake fishing. I never catch anything big, but I do enjoy it. I, I can't deep sea fish because I, I don't do well on the boats um, at sea. So I, I enjoy lakes. I wasn't leaning into the fish aspect because I told everybody, if you want to swim, go ahead. And so some people brought their swimsuits and were swimming and oh, I didn't want to be like, yeah, and there's like musky in this lake, which are like 40 pounds. And <laughs> <laughs> that's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's pretty terrifying. But is the water cold? I would assume it's like freezing. It's funny because it's not cold. Uh, you know, we've had this unseasonably warm June and I feel like the water is very warm, but my friends from Austin and Virginia and Florida thought it was very, very cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I, I mean, it thaws out in April. Uh, and so it's like literally 30s degrees then because the ice goes off the lake. I mean, we, people are astounded. We drive on our lakes in the winter. Like there's two feet of ice. We drive on them. We make roads. We put little houses out. It becomes like a new city in the winter and then it melts and it's very, very cold while it's in the thirties, but then it warms up like a bathtub almost. And by the time you get to July, it's like, you know, 75 degrees, it's very warm. 
That's pretty um, cool. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's delightful. We don't have a lake nearby, but we do live near a river. And I see people on boats, on kayaks, with canoes. And I've been thinking of getting a kayak at some point and, and trying that out. So I think it'd be a fun summer activity. You should. I got my wife a kayak. She had said the same thing for a long time. And I got her one like three years ago. And she goes all the time and she loves it. Yeah, it's uh, one of those things that it, it's expensive enough that I haven't done it yet, but I think that I need to make it a priority. Try renting one. I mean, yeah. there are places where you can rent them and you should try it. it it's, I feel like the, the, the stuff you like about mountain biking would be similar to what you would like about kayaking. It's a little bit of a physical activity. It's kind of in solitude. It's outdoors. You make progress as you go. It's, uh, it's very enjoyable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that would be great. And if I could... Um, fish while I'm in the kayak or in a canoe. <laughs> That's a different that would kind be of experience. But you, you can, yes. Yeah, that would be ideal. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, um, so I actually just got a new book that was released last year. Um, it's like a coffee table book. It's called 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know and Many Others You Will Find Interesting. Um, it was written by Ronald Bailey and Marianne Tupi. So um, this book basically uses global data sets to show ways that the world is improving. And it talks about, you know, how global access to food has improved and education has improved and, you know, homicide rates, at least prior to 2020. I don't know what the data looks like now, but that had improved um, as well as like the income, uh, gender income gap is closing very rapidly. So it talks about all these these global trends that are improving. So not to discount any of the problems that we do have, obviously those are still important, but I feel like for our own mental health, it is good to sometimes step back and see how things actually are um, improving from time to time. You know, this book is helpful for putting world history into perspective, and it was written with the intent of challenging the negativity bias that we have. And so I, I think many people, especially my age, feel like the world has really just, it's like catastrophe after catastrophe. Like a lot of people my age, we don't even remember much before 9-11. I'm going to date myself, but you know, it, it's, it is important to kind of step back and look at the longer term perspective and how things, you know, that they, they seem difficult and things certainly need to improve, but also we have achieved a lot as you know, humanity on a global scale. So I think having a little bit of optimism is important. It sounds like a great book. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great coffee table book. So yeah, highly recommend. Well, thanks, Chuck. Thanks for your time today. Always good to talk Thank to you, with you. We weren't able to do one last week. So I'm glad uh, to be able to see you and, and do this again. Yes, and sorry everybody for the gap, but we are back. We didn't so out. we're back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a little break is all right. Everyone, a little break every now and then is okay. When it logistically yeah. doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I know I'm going to be on book tour this fall, and we'll have a lot of different guests and people on here. So we'll we'll make it work. Yeah, we'll make it work. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care, Abby. 